Today I'm going to start a brand new series, and before I tell you what it's about, I need to say something here, and this is. What I'm going to discuss is going to turn off a lot of people. A lot of you are going to think that this isn't important, and yet I just want to preface this by saying that this is something that God spoke to me over four decades ago. I have been implementing this to the best of my ability. It has been developing and and evolving and just in the last year, actually all during this year of 2010, the Lord has just been emphasizing on me that this is really one of the most important things that He's ever shown me. I've mentioned this, I've talked about it in the past, but I haven't made a major deal out of it. And so I've been praying about this and for about the last seven, eight months, I've been really just meditating on this and developing this and so I preface all of these things by saying that I really believe that this is one of the most important things that I can share with you. And even though many of you are not going to immediately identify with this, I just encourage you to listen and give me an opportunity because this is going to make a huge difference in your personal life. It's going to answer a lot of questions for you. And one of the major benefits, I believe, of this is it's going to make you a hundred times more effective in your ministry to other people. It's going to change a lot of things. I believe it will also give you a lot of understanding about why the body of Christ is ineffective in many ways. You know, one of the problems that... Uh, has disturbed me is that if we have so many people who are claiming the name of the Lord, then why aren't we seeing our nation go in a godly direction? It seems like it's marching in exactly the opposite direction. And of course, that same principle, that same type of thing applies in uh, you know families and just on many different levels. And I believe that this teaching that I'm going to do is going to answer a lot of questions and it's going to really give you a focus. I think it's going to clarify things. It's like if you're looking at a puzzle and you know you just can't fit the pieces together. This is going to make a lot of things fit together and it's really going to be beneficial to you. So I say all of these things in advance of telling you what the subject is just so that you won't turn me off, so that you won't say, oh, well, I don't need that, or that doesn't sound interesting to me. But what I'm going to be talking about is discipleship. And I'm going to be specifically contrasting discipleship with the way that evangelism has typically been done in the body of Christ. And one of the major points that I hope to accomplish through this series is to show that if the emphasis was on discipleship, we would actually evangelize people better through discipleship evangelism than we would through the way that evangelism is being done. Now, as I said at the beginning, many of you, that just doesn't seem to ring a bell to you. Many of you are thinking, these are things that don't apply to me. And when you start talking about some of these foundational things and especially something called discipleship, most people just have a disconnect and don't see the importance of it. But again, I'm asking you, if you have been blessed by any of the teaching that I've done, if God has spoken to you through this, then I'm asking you just to take my word for this, that this is very important. This is something that you need to understand. A lack of understanding this is really one of the big problems why people aren't experiencing healing and prosperity and deliverance and relationships. It's why the church is not making the impact on our society that God intended for us to. 
And the Lord has just... I just believe that the Lord is speaking to me that this is really so important, that this is something I want to devote the rest of my life to. I've done it already for the last four decades. I've been trying to emphasize and disciple people, but it's just increased. Uh, when we started our Bible college in 1994, of course, that was a major increase in the way that we're trying to disciple people. And uh, I've had a meeting with my staff, and we've talked about that we just need to take all of the teachings that I've got, organize them, put them into series so that it will be easy for people like if you have a need in healing, that you'll be able to take our materials and just step one through ten or whatever, get all of the things that the Lord has shown me on healing. If it's prosperity, we can put all of these things together. If it's in marriage or in relationships, we're going to start organizing everything. And, and our whole ministry is just going to be focused on trying to disciple people and bringing them to a place to where they can appropriate the power of God for themselves. You know, I'll make this point in much more detail as we go through, but the body of Christ as a whole does not have this discipleship mentality. What we have is we have certain people, such as pastors or evangelists or ministers, television ministers, radio ministers, and we believe that those people are called and anointed by God, that they have a special anointing on them, and basically the body of Christ is depending upon these ministry gifts for God to funnel all of His power and His anointing into them. For instance, and there's many applications, but one application is in the area of healing. A lot of people really do not know how to believe God and receive the healing power that God has made available to every one of us. It's God's will that every single person be well. Not a single person is supposed to be sick. Christian, non-Christian, he's already paid for the sicknesses and the diseases of the entire world. It is never God who fails to heal. And yet the vast majority of Christians are not experiencing healing, not because God hasn't provided, but because they don't know how to receive. And one of the reasons that they aren't receiving is because they haven't been discipled. They haven't reached a place of maturity where they could reach out and take their healing. Like if you're familiar with any of the healing scriptures in the Gospels. There were people that asked Jesus to minister to them and Jesus had to go and pray for them. There's other people like the centurion in the 8th chapter of the book of Matthew that he mentioned to Jesus that his servant was sick and Jesus started to come and he says, I don't need you to come into my house. He says, I'm a man under authority. I have soldiers under me. If I tell somebody to go, they go. If I tell them to come, they come. And I recognize the authority in your word. You speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. And Jesus was shocked. It says he was amazed at this man's faith. And he says, I've never seen such great faith in all of the nation of Israel. This man wasn't even a Jew. He wasn't what we would term it today. He wasn't in the church. He wasn't a religious person. He was outside of the church. He wasn't even considered one of the religious people. And yet he had such faith that it amazed the Lord. And the Lord says, because of your faith, so be it done unto you. And there's other people. The woman with the issue of blood in the fifth chapter of the book of Mark did the same thing. There was people that could reach out and touch Jesus and the power of God would instantly flow because they had developed, their faith was at a level that Jesus would turn around and say, so be it done unto you according to your faith. There's other people that came like the man that had the um, son who was uh, demon-possessed and had some type of seizures. 
And he says, Lord, if you can do anything, have mercy on me and heal my son. And the Lord said, I, you know, it's not a matter of if I can do anything. It's if you can believe. And he says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So he had a degree of faith, but he was struggling, and so the Lord had to help him. He didn't tell that man, uh, uh, according to your faith, so be it done unto you. No, he had to step in and put his faith on the line to get his son healed. And what I'm saying is that there, today there are very, very few people who have developed in their relationship with the Lord to the degree that they can reach out and take their healing. And so they have to depend upon people who have special anointings on their life, people who have the gift of healing, the gift of miracles, and they run to their meetings. And again, I'm not saying that that's wrong. You know, we have to start someplace, but I'm saying it's wrong for the body of Christ to never progress past that. Let me start with a scripture over here in Ephesians chapter 4. And this is talking about that God gave to the church apostles prophets, evangelists, pastors, and uh, teachers. That's in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Let me just read this to you so I don't get it wrong. It says, uh, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. This is talking about that when he ascended on high, he led all of the people who had been in paradise or in Abraham's bosom. Uh, he led them into heaven. And he gave gifts unto man, and it lists these gifts of an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, pastor, and teacher. And then it says in the next verse, here is there why he gave these. He says, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of man and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up un, un, into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. And it goes on and talks about this. But the point I'm making is he gave these gifts, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, so that the saints the regular rank-and-file member of the body of Christ, Joe Blow, Jane Doe Christian, could become a disciple, could become mature, and then they do the work of the ministry. Now, some of you may not have ever looked at this verse in this light, but I want you to read this again. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints. He gave these gifts to perfect the saints for the work of the ministry. I, the way I'm interpreting this and believing it is that you perfect the saints and then the saints do the work of the ministry. You know, I believe that it is inefficient. This is one of the points that I'm going to be making and I'm going to be showing you a lot of stats and I'm going to be proving this, uh, I believe, conclusively, that the way that the body of Christ is set up to where we have the clergy and the laity these people that are anointed and called by God, and we depend upon them to go out and get the people born again. We, in, we depend upon them to go to the hospitals and make the calls, to pray for the sick, to see the sick heal. We depend upon them to be the spokesman for the body of Christ. I believe that that is absolutely wrong, and it is super inefficient. One person 
is not going to be near as efficient as if we had hundreds of people in that congregation that were mature and able to go out and into the hospitals and minister to the people at work. You know, you can say it this way. The scripture says over in, uh, I believe it's Second Peter chapter 3, Peter was talking about that he was a shepherd. He was called to be a shepherd. And the pastor of a church is called a shepherd. Did you know shepherd don't have sheep? Shepherd tend sheep. And as they feed the sheep and protect them and take care of them, sheep have sheep. Amen. We have been depending upon the shepherd to have sheep, the shepherd to produce all of the new births, for the shepherd to be the one who is getting all of the people into the kingdom and doing all of these things. No, the job of a pastor is to shepherd the sheep to mature the body of Christ and bring them to a place to where they can do the work of the ministry. And if that was the way we were doing it, instead of having one person who is out there as the point man and is, is leading people to the Lord and doing this, we would have hundreds, maybe thousands of people that were going into every, every area of their community and they would be impacting people. And I tell you, it would be much more efficient. But again, the body of Christ has not got this concept of discipleship. They do not see themselves as being disciples. Matter of fact, you know, if you talk to the average person and you start talking to them about their relationship with the Lord, you know what typically we ask people is, are you a Christian? And the word Christian today has become a cliche. It means really nothing to a lot of people. I've actually had people pull coins out of their pocket before when I asked, are you a Christian? And they say, well, of course I'm a Christian. It says right here, in God we trust. And they think that because they have a coin that says, in God we trust, that means that they're a Christian. I've had people say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not a Hindu. I'm not a Muslim. And since they don't believe in those other things, they by default think that they must be a Christian. I've had people acknowledge that, yeah, I believe that God exists. Yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And they think that that makes them a Christian. See, the word Christian has become something that is misused and abused today and it really doesn't mean very much to people. And if you were to ask, are you a Christian? It's really uh, very subjective. It can be as simple as like the thief on the cross who just said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus told him, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. It can be that simple. This man didn't have time to grow and disciple and go through training classes. It can be as simple as just in your heart acknowledging and receiving Jesus. But it's also true that there are people who say, Lord, Lord, and they aren't truly born again. I'm going to be showing you a lot of scriptures and showing that Jesus cut through the chase. Even the man who ran and fell down at his feet and says, what must I do to be saved? Jesus recognized that he wasn't committed. And he told him, you have to sell everything you've got and give it to the poor. And then come and follow me and you'll be my disciple. Boy, if we were to do that in our churches today, there would be an uproar. And yet that's exactly what Jesus did. So I'm saying that it can be as simple as just in your heart making a heartfelt commitment. But from our perspective, looking at things, you know, God looks on the heart and He can judge instantly whether this person really means it or not with all of their heart. That thief on the cross, He knew that He meant it and therefore He promised Him, today you're going to be with me in paradise. But when we look at a person who confesses, oh yeah, Jesus is my Lord, 
We can't really evaluate. Is that a heartfelt commitment or is he just mimicking, saying something that he's been told to say? Did he repeat the prayer just to get somebody off of his back or was he sincere? We can't see the heart of a person, but what we can do is see their actions over a period of time. So when it comes to a person saying, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I've made Jesus my Lord, that's somewhat subjective. We don't know about whether or not they have really meant that. And really, the only way you can tell is over a period of time is to look at them and see if there is a transformation. But if we were to ask, not are you a Christian, not have you been born again, but if we were to say, are you a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know what? That is something that is very easy to tell. Now, this doesn't mean that a person is perfect. It doesn't mean that they have no problems. We aren't going to be perfect until we go to be with Jesus or he comes back and takes us. But I'm saying a disciple is a person who is a learner, a follower, a person who is going on. I'm going to be showing you lots of scriptures and making these points. But I'm saying, see, that we have made the emphasis on you need to get born again and be a Christian, which being born again is absolutely essential. I am not short-selling that any at all. I believe in that 100%. But I'm saying that the Lord never told us to go and make converts. He told us to go and make disciples. Let me share this scripture with you from Matthew chapter 28. This is Jesus' last instructions to his disciples. Matter of fact, this is right as he was being caught up into heaven. In the very last words that he spoke to his disciples in verse uh, Matthew chapter 28... And in verse 18, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. This is Jesus' last instruction. This is what's called the Great Commission. This is the directive for His disciples from that time 2,000 years ago and it's still the directive of all of us today. What are we supposed to do? He said, go and teach all nations. This word teach, I won't attempt to pronounce this uh, Greek word here, but it literally means to be a pupil or a follower. And 10 other translations that I looked this up in, the, the Amplified, the NIV, and other translations, every one of them uses make disciples or disciple people. It's talking about discipleship. And, and in verse 20, it re-emphasizes this and basically says this in other words. It says you have to teach them to observe all things whatsoever. In other words, the command of Jesus wasn't to go and make converts. The command of Jesus wasn't to go and get somebody just to pray a prayer and get an insurance policy so that they won't die and go to hell, but instead they would go to heaven. The Lord never told us to do that. I'm going to give you examples and show you that Jesus himself didn't minister to people that way. He went in and ministered to them and, and uh, drew people to commitment. He, like I used in Mark chapter 10, this rich young ruler, he, he looked good. He had observed all of these commandments, but he was trusting in himself instead of trusting in God. And so the Lord just wanted to show him that, you know what, you haven't obeyed all the commands. The very first command is, you shall have no other gods. And he says, your money is a God. What that money can do for you, the power and the influence that it gives you, that's a God. That's more important to you than me. 
And this man, of course, didn't acknowledge it. And so he says, well, then go sell everything you've got and give to the poor. And immediately this man was not willing to put Jesus and his commitment to Jesus ahead of his trust in his finances. And it revealed that he had broken the very first commandment, which is, you shall have no other gods before me. And so, see, Jesus ministered to people about making them disciples. It wasn't just, all right, maybe you aren't willing to commit to me completely, but are you willing to accept salvation? See, this is the way that basically, and I'm going to amplify this and show this in a lot more detail as we go through this series, but this is the basic approach that the body of Christ has taken. They have broken salvation up into parts and pieces, and they say the, the most important thing, the thing that is essential is we've got to get people to born again. And so let's just not tell them about commitment. Let's not talk about trusting God in the area of finances. Let's not preach the whole gospel. Let's not tell them about healing. Let's not tell them about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let's just boil it down to its simplest terms. And uh, some of them might be offended if we go to telling them that God wants them to prosper that God wants them to start giving and trusting Him in this area. They might be offended if we tell them about healing and they may have a feeling like, well, then are you saying that it wasn't God's will that my wife, my child had to die and had to have these problems? They might be offended. So let's not talk about anything that could possibly offend them and let's just get them to pray this prayer and get uh, born again and then maybe later on they'll receive. Now, that could be voiced differently, but basically this is the approach that the body of Christ has had. The way that they try and uh, get into unity is that they compromise on just nearly everything. They, they look at, you know, like, well, you've got to get saved. That is an essential thing. So let's not talk about anything that would divide us. Let's just come together and hold a meeting and just tell people about the basics, about that there is a heaven and a hell and you've got to accept Jesus. And they just boil it down to its simplest terms and try and get people born again. And then, whether they become a disciple, whether they are taught all things, isn't even on the radar screen of the average Christian. And if it is there, it's an afterthought and it is a minor thing and they may or may not follow through. And as a result, there is just a very, very, very small percentage of people who claim the name of the Lord who could by any interpretation be called a disciple. The word disciple means a follower, a learner. Uh, One of the definitions is imitator. And they are supposed to be people who literally imitate Jesus. You know, in Acts chapter 11, I forget the exact verse, it says the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. You know, Jesus always called his followers disciples. And then during the beginning days of the church, they were called disciples. And the word disciple is very clear. That's a person who is a pupil, a learner, a follower, a person who is going on in their relationship with God. But then when the disciples were in Antioch, the unbelievers started calling them Christians. And the word Christian literally means little Christ. And it was a derogatory term that the unbelievers used to, in a sense, put down the Christians or the disciples. They started saying, you are acting just like a little Jesus. You think that you can love the way he did, that you can heal the way he did. And it was actually a derogatory term. But it became a tremendous compliment that somebody could say, you're like a little Christ. And so if you use the word Christian as it was originally used there in Acts chapter 11, well, then that's great. But today the word Christian uh, has lost a lot of its meaning. It's just a religious cliche. But you know the word disciple, 
still carries a connotation with it that people understand that a disciple is more than just a convert. This is a person who has gone on in their relationship with God, a person who is maturing, a person who is able to reproduce their faith in ministering to other people. And I really believe that this ought to be the goal of Christianity is discipleship and not just trying to do conversion, what the church today is calling evangelism. And because of this, what we've done, we've made the Christians dependent upon the clergy. They have to go to them to get counseling. They have to go to them to get healed. They have to go to them to find out what the Bible says because they don't know. We, in a sense, have paid people to be professional Christians so that all of us non-professionals can mooch off of them and bootleg the gospel and get our healing through them. I know I'm saying things in a way that might be offensive to some people, but I'm trying to emphasize that this is not the way that God intended it to be. God intended for His followers to be disciples, not just converts, not just people who prayed a prayer, got an insurance policy, but then if they have a problem, they have to run to somebody else. It's like they didn't build their house on the rock. They build their house on the sand. And if a storm comes, they got to run to their neighbor, to their pastor, or to some full-time professional Christian who has built their house and who has matured and who has become a disciple and they have to run inside their house and weather out the storm. God never intended that. God wants every single one of us to be a mature person, which is what the word disciple is talking about, so that when trouble knocks, we know what to do, so that we have the ability to stand. This is something that is, is at the heart of why people are struggling today because they haven't gone on. They haven't learned the Word of God. They, their goal is to get forgiven of their sins so that when they die, they won't go to heaven. And that's what they've been taught. That's what they believe for. The Bible says in Romans ten seventeen, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Once you get that goal and you obtain that goal, then the average Christian basically just puts it on autopilot. They just are coasting. They are just drifting and hoping that they can endure until the end, and they don't have any power and any victory in their life, and they are suffering themselves, which is not pleasing to God, and they make a terrible witness for the Lord. And because of it, the whole body of Christ, the whole cause of Christianity is hindered because of it. I'm telling you, there needs to be a drastic reformation, total transformation in this area, and people need to change and recognize that God didn't call any of us to just be a convert to just get saved. He called us to go on and be a disciple and to be a little Christ, to act so much like Him and have so much of His power evident in our life that when people see us, they recognize that, man, God has done something in our life. The average Christian, if they were arrested and tried for being a Christian, there wouldn't be enough evidence to convict them. There isn't any discipleship. There isn't any maturity manifest in their life. This is not what the Lord called us to. God said, go make disciples. Teach them to observe all things. We've said, well, let's not do that. Let's just get them born again. And if they're truly born again, then they'll just, it'll, it'll automatically work. That's not true. I guarantee you, we've got an entire world system, a demon, a devil that is against us and try, coming against us. And it takes effort to become a disciple. It's swimming upstream. It's counterculture. Our culture is not a Christian culture today. We talk about America as being a Christian nation, and I agree that it was founded as a Christian nation on Christian principles, but it is not living 
uh, consistent with those Christian principles. If you become a true disciple, you're going to be counterculture. You are going to stand out like a heel thumb. It's not going to be easy. It's going to take effort. You know, in a sense, it's like there, there's a friend of mine that they just had a baby, and they had this baby at our school just two days ago, and this baby's only two weeks old. And I love babies. But you know what? When you have a child, it's wonderful to have a child. It's exciting to see that new life and this miracle. But you have just entered into a huge responsibility. It is going to take a lot of money, a lot of time, being woken up in the middle of the night, changing dirty diapers, doing things that you never wanted to do. But you do all of these things because you have a responsibility. And if a person, if all they wanted to do was just have children and they loved having children, but then they didn't accept the responsibility of raising them, if they just had a baby and then threw it over in the corner and say, if it's human, it'll live, let's go have another child. You know what? That's child abuse. You would have somebody step in. Somebody would do something to you. That is absolutely irresponsible. And yet, to a very large degree, this is what the body of Christ has been doing. The body of Christ is, oh, let's get people born again. Let's introduce them to the Lord. Let's get them saved. And so people go through and pray a prayer. And you know, I don't, I don't have any way of knowing what percentage of people who just pray a prayer, join a church, acknowledge, embrace Christianity, and claim to be Christian. I don't have any way of knowing what percentage of those are truly born again. But I can guarantee you there is a huge percentage that it is just a mental thing with them. There is no heartfelt commitment they aren't truly born again. And I base that on Scripture where Jesus said, many are going to say unto me, Lord, Lord, and yet they aren't born again. And he'll say, I never knew you. It wasn't people who were committed to him and fell away. He says, depart from me, you wicked, into everlasting destruction. I never knew you. They weren't truly born again. He taught the parable about the tares and the wheat and that the enemy comes and sows uh, false Christians. You know, uh, in the example, tares look exactly like wheat until the fruit comes. And then they don't produce fruit, whereas wheat does. And it looks the same. And so he said, well, you have to let them both grow together until the time of harvest. Until, and then the angels will come and separate them. And the point was that in the body of Christ, there are going to be people who are not truly born again. People who profess but don't possess true Christianity. And so there's just, you, on and on you go. There are a lot of things in Scripture that show that there are many people who think that they have a relationship with God because they have lived a moral life or whatever, but they haven't been truly converted. And we, the Christians, the body of Christ, have contributed to this by changing the direction of the Lord from making disciples to making converts. We've told people that all you have to do is just repeat this prayer. Just make Jesus your Lord and you're saved and everything's fine. And again, there are some of those that are truly born again. It is that simple. But it has to be from the heart. It says in Romans chapter 10, verse 10, For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It can be as simple as a person just simply saying, I make Jesus my Lord. And if they mean that with their heart and really believe it, they are born again. But you know what? It's hard to tell whether a person truly means it from their heart. I actually took a group of our students, the very first group of students that graduated from our school, 
and we were over in um, England and Ireland, and we were ministering, and some of the students were ministering. There were also some of our partners that went with us, and there was this one guy who had just gotten born again a short period of time. And he was excited. He was leading anything that moved to the Lord. I mean, he was grabbing people by the throat, saying, repent. And his zeal was commendable, but he didn't use a lot of wisdom. And anyway, we were sitting around. Don Francisco uh, was playing his guitar and singing songs, and it drew a crowd. And as this crowd was listening to him sing, then this young guy was going through the crowd and witnessing to people. And anyway, he was right behind me, and I heard him talking to a woman behind me. And he was telling her about, are you born again? Do you know where you'd go if you were to die right now? And she said, no, I don't. And he says, well, then if you'll pray this prayer after me and uh, repeat these words, you'll be born again. So he started leading her through this prayer, and he got to a part in the prayer where he says, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And this woman stopped and she says, I can't pray that. I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. And this young guy, he says, look, it doesn't matter if you believe it. Just say it and you'll be saved. And he actually told this woman that. And I had to interrupt and I, I stopped him and I said, look, it does matter. The scripture says you have to confess it with your mouth and believe it with your heart. Most people wouldn't be as blatant, as open as this young guy was. But you know what? There's a lot of people that honestly, the emphasis isn't on you've got to believe it. You've got to mean this from your heart. It's not just magic. You saying that Jesus is your Lord does not produce salvation. You have to believe what you're saying. It has to be a heartfelt commitment. And that hasn't been emphasized. People are just out. We've got to get... In a sense, it's like you go out and you conquer the enemy and bring their scout back to church and say, look what I did. I had five people repeat a prayer after me. Or in our evangelism services, we have people come by the thousands and we have them repeat a prayer and fill out a card. And in the vast majority of our evangelistic efforts, follow-up is not a major thing. I don't take any joy in saying that. But I'm saying again, the emphasis is on we've got to get these people born again. That's as irresponsible as saying we've got to have a child. And then once that child is born, just throw it in the corner. And, and if, it's Christ, you know, if it's human, it'll live. No, it's got to be nurtured. It's got to be taken care of. When you lead a person to the Lord, there is a responsibility to disciple them. And yet that is not the attitude of most people. And so because of it, we have multitudes of people, multitudes, who have claimed the name of Christianity. Some of them are born again, but many of them have just gone through the motions. It's not real. It's not genuine. And I can say the vast majority, probably 99 point something percent, haven't moved on into the place of being a disciple where they're mature and able to represent God properly. And because of that, they are actually becoming a negative witness for the Lord. How many of you have ever heard somebody say something like, I would have been a Christian if I had, hadn't have meant one? I'm not going to be like those old hypocrites down there at church. You know, some of you, I'm sure, have heard of Mahatma Gandhi. And he's the guy that led the nation of India to independence from the British. 750 million people in the nation of India at that time. Did you know that he was exiled from India for a period of time? And he was in Africa. And while he was in exile because of the political situation, he decided to read the New Testament. And after reading the New Testament, 
he was absolutely convinced that Jesus was the Son of God and that Jesus was the only way, the only truth, and uh, the only life. And he went to a Presbyterian church in Africa that was run by white missionaries and his purpose in going was to make a profession of his faith and make Jesus his Lord. And when he got there, because he was black, they wouldn't let him into their service. And they excluded him and said, you can't come in here because you're black. And Mahatma Gandhi made the statement. He said, I would have been a Christian if I hadn't have met one. You know what? That's because people were out proclaiming the Lord, and yet they weren't true disciples. They hadn't continued in the Word. They were still letting their traditions and their prejudices and stuff. And there are multitudes of people that have been turned off to God, not because of who God is, but because of the way His children represent Him, because they haven't matured. I'm telling you, we are so committed to evangelism and we've got to make this impact and we want a thousand people to come forward and make a decision or two thousand. And we, we say, but these people are going to die and go to hell if we don't reach them. We've got to reach them at all costs. And if we have to compromise and water down the message and only preach a very small portion of what Jesus told us to do, we've got to compromise and do whatever to get these people born again. But there's only a very small percentage of those who are truly born again. And then out of those that really made a commitment to the Lord, there's a, there's a nearly minuscule percentage who go on and become mature in the Lord. And all the rest of this vast number of people, maybe there's thousands of people that quote unquote make a commitment for the Lord. Out of those thousands, there might be 10, 15, 100 who ever go on and become disciples and all the rest of those, those, those 1,900 or whatever are now Christians in name only, but they don't possess it. They aren't reflecting God properly. They are actually a negative witness. And we're so quick to count statistics and say there was 2,000 people born again. But how many people were turned off because this quote-unquote Christian stabbed them in the back at work, didn't act in a Christian manner? because they are operating in jealousy, because they went out and they did all of these things. They lie, they cheat, they steal. They do all of the other things that the unbelievers do. And because of it, people who've been evaluating Christianity, look at this person who's claiming the name and who goes to church and they're turned off by it. How many thousands of people have been turned off and run away from the gospel because of our evangelism? See, we're quick to count statistics and say we led 2,000 here and 20,000 here or whatever, but we can't count those negative statistics, but I'm guaranteeing you they exist. They are there. And this is not the way that God called us to preach the gospel. You know, I went to India in 1980, I believe it was. It might have been 81. And I went over there and I, we had meetings planned where we were going to have thousands and thousands of people come and there was a riot there were riots when i arrived they imposed martial law and for nearly a week we just had to hide out nobody could get out on the, on the streets they would shoot to kill so anyway it, it ruined all of our services the man who brought me over there had an inroad into the methodist churches in Ahmedabad. And I went into them. Some of them had 600, 800 people in some of these Methodist churches. But, you know, even though they were claiming to be Christians, they still had the Hindu mark in their forehead. And as I began to start ministering to these people, I started finding out that many of them, matter of fact, the vast majority of them weren't truly born again. 
The guy who was the bishop over this city, and in Omdabad, it was a city of millions of people. I don't remember all the details, but there was thousands and thousands of quote-unquote Methodist in this. And they had been Methodist their entire life. And I began to start realizing that they were professing to be Christians, but they didn't possess it. And I asked this guy, I said, how many people do you think out of these tens of thousands of people in Ahmedabad who claim to be Christians, how many do you think are truly born again? And he says, I don't know for sure, but he says, if I could find two families out of 10,000, he says, I'd be thrilled. I don't think there's probably more than two families out of 10,000 quote-unquote Methodists that had truly experienced a conversion and had been changed. And I was just shocked. And I realized that, you know, these people were harder to reach than if they had never heard of the name of Christ because now they were inoculized, in a sense, against Christianity. They thought that they were one. And they didn't understand that Jesus was the only way, the only truth, the only life. John chapter 14, verse 6. I actually have a picture of a uh, an idol, um, a little altar that they had. And there was Hare Krishna, Hare Lam, Buddha over here. And in the middle was Jesus. And they were burning incense to all three of them. There are something like 300 million gods in India. And if you go over and tell them, would you accept Jesus as your Savior? They'll accept Jesus as one of the gods. They'll just add him to the 300 million so that they don't miss any. I know that that's happening. And you know, when I came back, I was on the plane with a man who was really well-known, pastored a large church, had been on the 700 Club, and this guy had held services where tens of thousands of people came forward and quote-unquote got saved. And man, as I was preaching the gospel, that wasn't the experience I had. I saw people born again. I saw some people healed. But I tell you, it was like pulling teeth. And again, that religious culture over there it's like Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verse 13, you make the word of God of none effect through your tradition and doctrines of man. And that religious tradition over there is just like, it was like trying to plow in concrete. It was hard. I saw some people accept the Lord. I saw some people born again. I saw some healings and things like that. But it certainly wasn't tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. So I started asking this guy questions. And I didn't prejudice him by telling him my experience, I just started asking, so what kind of crowds did you have? He had hundreds of thousands of people come to his meeting. And I said, and how many people responded? And there was tens of thousands that came forward and got born again. And I just asked him, I said, so did you tell them that Jesus was the only way, the truth and the life, that they couldn't worship Jesus and Buddha and Hare Krishna and and Islam and all these other things, they couldn't, they couldn't mix all of this, that Jesus wasn't just a way, but he is the way. And this guy said, oh no, God gave me great wisdom and told me just to introduce them to him. And then once they came to him, he would straighten all this out and change all of this. And so this man, in effect, in effect, was saying, no, I didn't make disciples. No, I didn't tell them everything. I didn't tell them that Jesus was the only way. I just told them, repeat this prayer. And then he claimed them as being born again. You know, if you were to take all the people that have been over there and have seen a million people born again in one service or whatever, and if you were to add all of this up, it would be more than the population of India. Amen. <laughs> I'm just saying, that is not what God called us to do. You know, let me just illustrate this by going back to when I first got turned on to the Lord. 
I'd been raised in the Baptist church, and the Baptists are very evangelistic. Matter of fact, once you get born again in a Baptist church, you really don't ever have to go back to church because every service is all an evangelistic service, preaching about getting saved. And it, I mean, they, every service is to get people saved. So once you get that, really, there's not much need to go to church because there wasn't much else to it. All, all there was to salvation was getting saved, and then they taught you how to get another person saved. And so it was all evangelism. So when I got really turned on to the Lord, I had this miraculous encounter with the Lord. You know, again, you can't operate in something that you don't know. I didn't know anything about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I didn't understand about healings, miracles, about a real intimate personal relationship with God. I just didn't. I wasn't a disciple. I was a convert. And when I got really turned on and had this miraculous encounter with the Lord, I just started mimicking the way that I had been taught and what I had seen modeled in front of me. And that was that, man, it was all about getting people saved. So I started going up to people. If they came out of a 7-Eleven store with a pack of cigarettes or a can of beer, I'd grab them and say, you're going to hell, repent or else, turn or burn. We passed out tracks in, in the bars that said, repent or else, turn or burn. I mean, I was obnoxious. I was just radical. I was... It was all about, you got to be born again. And I'd have people pray prayers after me. We were knocking on a hundred doors a day trying to get people born again. It, we weren't trying to disciple people. It was just all, you got to get saved. you got to get saved. And that's what it was all about. And as I did this over a period of a year or two, I would come back across some of the same people that I had led through a prayer that they quote unquote had been saved and I'd meet them again. They still had the same problems. They were just as spiritually dead as they were before. There wasn't any evidence that there was any change in their life. And the Lord ministered to me out of a lot of scriptures, but one of them was John chapter 15, I believe it's verse 16. And it says, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it unto you. And that verse said that our fruit's to remain. And I began to start seeing that I was having all kinds of converts. I mean, I was leading two or three people a day to the Lord, quote, unquote, to the Lord. And yet, I'd go back and see them six months later, and there was no fruit that remained. There was no evidence of them being a Christian. And I began to realize that this is not right, that this isn't working. And during that period of time, God put some people across my path who were associated with this group called the Navigators. You know, there's an organization. It's headquartered right here in Colorado Springs, not very far from, from our office. But they began to start teaching me some things. And they used a number of things to show that what we've got to do is make disciples of people, not just converts. And I mean, this has been 40-something years ago in my life. And this impacted me in a powerful way. Prior to that time, I had basically been an evangelist because that's all I'd ever had modeled and patterned to me. But through these people, I began to realize that God called us to make disciples. And that's when I started emphasizing teaching believers. And actually, I see more people born again today, but it's not all through me. At our meetings, we see people born again. We see people baptized in the Holy Spirit. But I get hundreds, thousands of testimonies of people that I've ministered to who were already Christians, 
but they weren't experiencing victory in their life. And as I teach them the Word of God, how to get healed, how to prosper, how to resolve differences and get along with people and to do all of these things, then they go out and they lead other people to the Lord. And they get changed. I really believe that that's what God has called me to do. I really believe that's what God has called all of us to do is to disciple others and then through them as they go out, they reproduce. And this has an exponential uh, effect on the body of Christ. One of the examples that these people that were associated with the navigators gave me, and I've printed this out so that I won't misquote it. I've sometimes misquoted this, so... uh, For all of you have heard me talk about this before, this is the latest, amen? So disregard my previous figures. (laughs) But here is the latest uh, figures on this, that if one person went out and, and told a person about the Lord and they got converted, they were born again, had a true relationship with God, and then... Instead of just going out and trying to get another person saved, instead they went out and they discipled that person for six months. So instead of just trying to get a person born again every day like what I was doing, you you found a person and when they opened up and received the Lord, well then you shut yourself up with them and for six months you just started teaching them everything that God has taught you about being a disciple. So that at the end of six months this person would be a disciple. They wouldn't, that doesn't mean that they were as mature as they would ever be, but they were to a place where they could actually reproduce and go share with another person and bring them to that level where they are. So if you were to make the emphasis on discipleship instead of converts, well, at the end of six months, you'd only have two disciples. And let's contrast this with a person who was so zealous that he was leading three or more people per day to the Lord. Let's say that he could lead a thousand people a year to the Lord. You know, that would be exceptional. I've seen as many as three people or four in a day get born again. But to think that a person could do this 365 days out of the year, that would be exceptional. I mean, this is over the top. But let's just say that somebody could lead a thousand people to the Lord, make a thousand converts a year to the Lord. At the end of 35 years, a typical ministry length, did you know that person would have 35,000 converts? That wouldn't even affect one of our larger cities. And then, uh, like I've already said on previous broadcasts, you know, not all converts are true disciples. They aren't, many of them aren't even truly born again, and certainly the vast majority of them, probably 99%, are not able to go out and reproduce their faith. They actually are a negative witness for the Lord instead of a positive witness. So if you can factor all of that in, even if in 35 years a man was able to leave 35,000 people, quote unquote, to the Lord, only a small percentage of those would be truly born again and a very small percentage of those would be to a place where they were mature and able to really be a positive witness for the Lord. But see, most people go for these stats and they say, but we've got to reach these people. If you were discipling people the way I just talked about, at the end of six months there'd only be two disciples, whereas this person who was leading all of these people to the Lord, there'd be 500 converts after six months. At the end of a year, there'd be a thousand converts. At the end of a year making disciples, there'd only be four disciples. 
And see, most people think this is just too ineffective. We can't do it. But look at this. As you continue to go on, if these people led a person to the Lord, but then discipled them to where they could be mature enough to lead another person to the Lord and then disciple that person. As this continues on, in just 18 months, there would be eight disciples. Then in two years, there would be 16 disciples. When you get up to five years, you would have 1,024 disciples. And see, some people would say, yeah, but the person who was out evangelizing, you would have 5,000 converts at the end of five years. But look at this. When you get to 10 years, there would be 1,048,576 disciples through the discipleship method. They just keep doubling every six months. Versus there would be 10,000 converts if a person was just out to make converts. When you continue on at 12 and a half years, there would be 33 million plus disciples. At 15 years, there would be over 1 billion disciples. And at 16 and a half years, if you were to make disciples, every, make a disciple every six months, and then that disciple and you both go out and reproduce your faith, at the end of 16 and a half years, there would be 8,589,939,592 disciples, more than the population of the world. And another example that was given to me is if you had a checkerboard, which there's 64 squares on a checkerboard, if you put one grain of wheat on the first square and then you doubled it, again, this is the principle of discipleship, there would be two grains of wheat on the second square. And then there would be four, and then eight, and sixteen, thirty-two, sixty-four, etc. But did you know by the time you got to the sixty-four square, now listen to this, you would have two hundred and ninety-five quintillion, four hundred and seventy-nine quadrillion, nine hundred trillion, and more than that. I mean, this number is just overwhelming to me. I'd never heard of the word quintillion until this. But you know what? Here's a practical way of saying it. If you put that grain of wheat on the first square and just kept doing it, did you know by the time you got to the 64 square, you would have enough wheat to cover the continent of India three feet deep in wheat? Man, that is just, that's mind-boggling. That's overwhelming. Can you see that if we were making disciples and not converts, then we would be uh, much more effective in just a very brief period of time. But it starts off slow. And most people, our, our culture today, we're just instant, into instant gratification. We're very short-term thinking. And we think, oh, but there's people dying and going to hell and I've got to go out and just tell everybody and I haven't got time to disciple them because there's other people that need to know. And now we've been doing that for hundreds of years. We've changed the, the command of the Lord from making disciples to making converts. And the church for centuries has just been putting the emphasis on let's get people born again. Let's just introduce them. And then it's an afterthought about discipleship. And it's not very effective. And it's not the focus. And it's not the emphasis. And because of this, look at how we're impacting our world. There has been some improvement. There are people that are going on with the Lord. And I'm not saying that it's a failure, but it is not the potential that God uh, gave us through discipleship. If we were to put the emphasis on discipleship 
in 16 years, you could effectively evangelize the entire world through discipleship. It is much more effective. This is the way that God intended for the body of Christ to represent Him, is to go out and make disciples, tell people about the Lord. Yes, bring them to a commitment where they get converted and they get born again, but then take the responsibility, just like when a child is born. Don't throw him in a corner, but instead recognize that I've got a responsibility. I brought a life into the world, and now I've got to do something with this. If we were to follow through with that, I guarantee you we would have been much more effective. Now, I admit that these stats that I've given are not going to work exactly this way because not every person is going to receive it. Not every person, even Jesus' 12 disciples, one out of 12, Judas, wound up rejecting him. And Jesus was the perfect uh, uh, mentor, the perfect person to teach him. And yet, one-eighth of the people that followed Jesus closely wound up falling away. So these stats wouldn't be you know, perfectly like this. But this is the potential, and it is much greater, much greater. You know, the average pastor goes out, and they just want a big church, and so, man, they're looking to grow, and so they want a 1,000 people. I've, I've heard uh, stories of people, I won't call their names, that went out and started their church with 4,000 people at the first service, and they have these mega churches, and they do these things. And so most pastors would say, I haven't got time to disciple. So they go out and they start holding crusades. They start doing something. They go on radio and television and try and draw people in. And they, they uh, may start with 100 or 200 or 300 or whatever. But you know, the vast majority of churches never grow beyond 200 people. I've heard a statistic that over 80% of all churches in the United States are below 200 people. And so most people would say, but yeah, if I was to go through this discipleship method the way you're talking about, after two years, there'd only be 16 of us. Well, and see, most people would say, I've got to grow faster than that. But if you were to just continue this, if you just started by yourself and led one person to the Lord and for six months discipled him, and then you started this process, at the end of five years, you'd have over a thousand people. That would outstrip the growth of the vast majority of all churches in the United States. Man, in 10 years, you would have over a million people. Now, of course, that would be limited based on the place that you're in and the population, but I'm saying that the growth potential through discipleship is much greater, but most ministers would opt for the evangelism method. Let's just get them in, get them excited, get them pumped up, and they aren't making disciples because it's more work, but it also has more potential. The body of Christ should be making disciples. We need to sit down and count the cost. And boy, there are so many things I've got to share about all this. Let me share a passage of Scripture with you here. I've uh, printed this out. These are my notes from my computer, but let me read some statements to you here that Jesus made. In Luke chapter 14, verse 26, he says, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Boy, what a strong statement. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You know, I think you can see through this that discipleship is a notch above, a lot of notches above just making converts. 
And again, the body of Christ as a whole, if you were to go out and try and evangelize people through discipling them and teaching them these things and preaching commitment the way that Jesus taught it right here, did you know the vast majority of the body of Christ would get on your case and criticize you and say, man, you're preaching, this is too restrictive, this is too hard, it's not that hard to get born again. Well, it's true that you can get born again. I refer again to the thief on the cross. He didn't go through all of these steps. He didn't go through two years of discipleship. But man, on the cross, he defended Jesus when the other thief was criticizing him and mocking Jesus. And he defended him and he stood up. And and instead of thinking about his own pain and suffering, he put Jesus first and honored him and defended him. And because of that, he was born again. So it, you don't have to be 10 years seeking the Lord to be born again. It is as simple as just making Jesus your Lord and putting Him first. But I'm saying that when Jesus presented the gospel to people, He was saying, unless you hate your own life and all of these others. He's not truly talking about that you have to hate other people. The same passage is listed in Matthew chapter 10, and it's worded differently in Matthew's gospel. And it says, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. So you can see by comparing these two passages that he's talking about a relative hatred. In other words, the scripture even tells us in Exodus chapter 20 to honor your father and mother. And the Lord told us that we're supposed to love other people and turn the other cheek. This isn't saying that you're literally supposed to hate people, but it's saying that in comparison to your commitment to God, you ought to be more committed to God than you are to any other relationship, even more so than you are to yourself. Did you know very few people present that to people when they're trying to draw them to the Lord. Because again, we just make it as simple as we possibly can. We don't want to turn anybody off. We don't want to overwhelm them with, I'm going to have to make a total commitment. I've got to love God more than myself. Most people wouldn't even present that. And yet that's exactly what Jesus did. This is the reason that we've got people today that are claiming the name of Christianity, that there is zero evidence of it in their life. Let me use another example. This is a scriptural example here, and a lot of people have missed this, but God has really spoken this to me. I'm getting these facts out of my uh, Life for Today study Bible, and this is on the Gospels. It took me about 10 years to write all of these footnotes, put the references, and, and I use this thing all of the time. But I've got some things written out here that I I just don't have stored in my brain, so I'm going to have to refer to this. But I'm talking about the instance where Jesus fed the 5,000. And he took these five loaves and two fish, looked up to heaven and broke them, uh, blessed them, and then he broke the bread and gave to his disciples. But it specifically says that he made the people sit down in groups of 50. Now, the scripture here says that there was 5,000 men not counting women and children. So just use a conservative estimate. I think if there was 5,000 men, there was at least 5,000 women and children. So there, you know, probably could have been 15,000 or more people. But if we use the number of 10,000, I think that's conservative. So let's say that there was 10,000 people broken into groups of 50. That means that there were 200 groups of people seated over this large area. That means that there was 16 and a third group per disciple. So each disciple 
had to go to 16 and a third of these groups of 50. And again, this is conservative. It could have been more than that. Or, if you multiply it out, that's each disciple had to feed 815 people. Now, I want you to think about this, because again, a lot of times we just read this and don't think about this. But here is a great truth. If Jesus was the one that when he broke the bread, it multiplied in his hands... And he had to keep breaking the bread and the disciples took all of this bread as it was multiplying in his hands and then they ran. Remember, they had 815 people that they had to serve and they not only gave them the first, but they gave them seconds as much as they wanted and then they took up all of this food. The scripture says in um, Mark chapter 6, I believe it's verse uh, 35 or 45 when it started this story, it says that it was towards evening when all of this happened. And the disciples says, Lord, you need to send the people away because it's late in the day. They aren't going to be able to get food. They've come a long ways. They'll perish. So this wasn't early in the morning. It was late in the day. And then, I believe it was Mark chapter 6, verse 45. I can find that here real quickly. It um, said that he had to constrain his disciples to get into the ship and go to the other side. Mark six forty-five. And it was at evening time, so it was still light. So my point is, it was late in the day when this need arose, and within just an hour or two, they got into the ship and went to the other side. So that means that this feeding of the 5,000 had to take place quickly. It had to take place in an hour's time or something like that. And yet, if you were to just multiply all of this out, each disciple had 815 people minimum that he had to minister to. And I've got it written out here that if um, each disciple took seven minutes to get all of this food, to run to these 16 groups, dispense the food and come back, if they took seven minutes to do that. And again, this is, this is uh, quick. It could have taken more than that. But if you figure all of this out, it would have taken a minimum of seven hours to feed all of these people. It couldn't, have, it couldn't have happened in the time frame that the Scripture presents because, again, it was late in the day. He says, send the people away. And within an hour or two, he had his disciples getting into a ship and going to the other side. So this took place in much less time than this is logistically possible. So you know what this means? Here's my point. Jesus blessed this food. He broke it and he gave it to the disciples. And the multiplication took place in the disciples' hands. It's the only way that this could have happened. Now again, Jesus is God, and I guess, you know, he could have suspended time or I don't know. There, you know, there may be some other explanation, but the one that seems logical to me is that he blessed this food and the multiplication didn't take place in his hands. But when he gave this little bit of bread and a little bit of fish to the disciples, the disciples went out and they just started breaking it. And every time they broke it, there was more. And it multiplied in their hands. That is the only way that the feeding of this 5,000 could have taken place in a relatively short period of time. And to me, this is a great illustration, see, of discipleship. We have been trying to get the ministers to do everything, to minister and to get everybody healed and everybody saved and everybody has to come to them for counseling and, and it's all of these things. And we have, we've tried to do this and it's inefficient. It just doesn't work. You know, I love ministering to people and I love touching people's lives. 
But I can't touch everybody. I can't do everything. I have learned, and one of the things that the Lord put on my heart was for me to take the things that God has put in my heart and share with other people, and then they go out and they begin to start doing these things. This is consistent with what I was sharing from Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 11 and 12. This is also the exact scripture that the Lord put on my heart when I started our Caris Bible College. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, or chapter 2, verse 1, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. And that's what this whole Bible College is based on, is we are taking the things that God has put in our heart and we are discipling people. And through that, we I really believe that we are going to be reaching more people through taking these people that come here, discipling them, bringing them to the place that God has brought me to. And of course, praise God, they can go way beyond me, but I'm saying at least I can teach them the things that I know and bring them to a place to where they can experience what I've experienced. And then through them going out, through our students going out, I really believe that that's the only way we are ever going to really impact the world. And yet this hasn't been the model of most of the church. Most of the church takes one person who is anointed and puts the emphasis on them, all of the responsibility on them. And I tell you what, it's ineffective. You can't minister to all of the needs of the people. And it also wears the person out. You know, in our meetings, I've started taking people with us and our Bible college students. We train them. We have taught them how to pray. And we have people at our meetings that stand there and pray for others. And we are seeing, I don't know, 10, 20 times as many people touched by the power of God as when I have to stand there and pray for them all by myself. It's just ineffective. This miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 could not have happened if Jesus didn't have disciples. And, you know, it wasn't something that took place without their cooperation. They had been discipled by the Lord. They had seen miracles before, and they were operating in faith. Now, the disciples made a lot of mistakes. I'm not saying that they were perfect, but they were people who were growing and maturing, and they had already been casting demons out. And, you know, it took a lot of faith for these people to be sitting down, 16 and a third group, 815 people, and here I am with one little bit of bread, one little bit of fish, and I'm heading towards all these people saying, I'm going to feed you. You know what? Those disciples could have just thrown this down and said, Jesus, this is impossible. I, I can't go feed all of these people with this tiny bit of food. And they could have just avoided the situation and not have obeyed him. Most of us, see, we'd want Jesus to multiply all of the food and just pile it up by huge piles and get a truckload and drive the truck out there. And after we are guaranteed that we have the supply to meet everybody's need, then we go out and say, here I am and here's your food. But no, Jesus sent them out with something that in every natural way of evaluating things was completely incapable of meeting the need and he says, you go out and feed all of these 815 people at least. It, it was probably over a thousand person, thousand people per disciple. You go feed them with this little bit. And as they obeyed and went and started doing it, that's when the multiplication took place. This is the way it's supposed to be in the body of Christ. The full-time ministers, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher are supposed to minister to the saints 
They are supposed to disciple them. Get them to a place that they can function like the pastor of the church does. You may have a different calling, but you still have the same uh, power and authority and the same uh, name of Jesus that you could use. And the people should be going out and doing all of these miracles. Those of you that have been born again and seeking the Lord for 20, 30 years or something, many people will remember Mel Tari. He wrote the book, Like a Mighty Wind, and he told about this revival that took place in Indonesia. They were in a Presbyterian church. The power of God just swept in. I mean, the gifts of the Spirit started operating. People were being told their names and miracles were happening. People were raised from the dead. And I don't even remember the statistics, but dozens of people were raised from the dead. People walked on water to go out and preach the gospel uh, through rivers that were infested with crocodiles and things, and they'd just walk across the water. Miracle after miracle happened. He had this book, Like a Mighty Wind. And it was tremendous. And all of it started in a Presbyterian church. Just miracle after miracle happened. Well, years after that, I was speaking at a full gospel businessman thing and Mel Tari was speaking also. And I'd read his book. And, and back, I'd say 20 to 30 years ago, Mel Tari was probably the hottest thing in the charismatic part of the body of Christ. Man, he was just making a, a huge impact on people telling all of these stories what had taken place in Indonesia. And anyway, when I was with him, I started asking him questions and uh, asking some things about what I'd read in his book. And, and one of the things was I basically wanted an update. And I said, so are you still seeing these kind of miracles? Are people being raised from the dead and blind eyes open, deaf ears open, the lame walking? Are these miracles still happening in those churches? And he said, no, we hardly ever see a miracle. This is like 10 years later. He says, we hardly ever see a miracle in the church. And my response was, well, isn't that a shame? He says, it's, I, I said, it's just like every other move of God. It tends to die out over a period of time. And he said, oh, no, it's not like that at all. He says, we are seeing more miracles happen than have ever happened before. He says, the things I wrote about in Like a Mighty Wind, he says, we are seeing more happen now than we ever saw, but it doesn't take place in the church he says the people in the churches have already been set free and they are growing up and now all of these miracles aren't taking place through the pastors and through the leadership. It's taking place through the rank and file member in their workplace, just out in the villages. He says we are seeing more miracles than ever, but they're just spread out through the people. And you know, that is, I believe, what God wants to happen. He wants, yes, I'm not denying that God calls people like me into full-time ministry and pastors of churches. Matter of fact, that uh, passage that I used in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11, he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. You know, some people haven't thought about this, but each one of those things is listed separately. Apostles, comma, prophets, evangelists, all of those things have commas. Those are individual things. But when it comes to the pastor, it says pastors and teachers. I believe that a pastor should be a teacher. And yet we have a lot of evangelists that are pastoring churches today for who knows whatever reason. Security issues, to have a, a base of support, people that are going to support them so that you don't have to be out there. I don't know. There could be a lot of different reasons but we've got people today who are evangelists that are pastoring churches and they aren't teachers. But I believe according to that scripture in uh, Ephesians 4.11, a true pastor should be a teacher because it is the responsibility of the pastor to shepherd those sheep, to disciple them, to bring them 
to a place of maturity. The average church, you come together and the message this Sunday is completely disjointed from the message the previous Sunday. It's going to be completely different. It's more like a cheerleading thing. It's like a pep rally where you get them together and you, you excite them and people proclaim. Yeah, there is a place to proclaim a truth and say it is God's will for you to be saved or healed or delivered or whatever. But teaching explains. Preaching proclaims, teaching explains, and tells you how to do it. In a sense, it's, it's nearly wrong or it's, it's, it causes problems to proclaim that God wants you to prosper and then not give the person the information about how to do it because it builds this expectation. And uh, Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick. If you get people expecting healing, but then they don't have a clue how it works and they think only the super saints can do it, the super dupers, well then, you know what? You're building a case for frustration, disappointment, and in some ways they're worse off to have heard preaching without any teaching that will teach them how to do it. Discipleship is teaching. It is explaining to a person. It is line upon line. And again, I am not against church. I am for a church. I am a member of a church. I advocate the church. But I'm saying that churches have not taken this responsibility for making disciples. They don't systematically teach anything. As a matter of fact, most churches only meet one hour a week. You might find some churches that meet two hours a week or something like this. But again, let me compare this to your secular education. What would happen if you went to school as a six-year-old one hour a week? Did you know some of you would have been 30, 40, 50 years old before you ever put all of these pieces together and learned how to read? I remember my granddaughter went to school and within two weeks was reading. It was amazing, but it was because it was concentrated and it was taught in a progression. The body of Christ isn't teaching people that way. The average church, again, it's totally disjointed. It's just a pep rally. You come and you get built up and heard something proclaimed and you get excited and you feel good at the moment uh, about God loves you, but then you don't understand, well, what about this over here? And why? Do, if God loves me, then what about Him sending out a death angel and killing 185,000 people in one night? And you have these questions and it's not being explained. You aren't being discipled, and so the devil is able to steal that word because we don't understand. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, discipleship is absolutely essential, and the lack of discipleship is the reason that many of you are struggling the way you are and feel no confidence you have to run to somebody else for help. And it's the reason that the body of Christ isn't impacting our culture, our society, the way we should is because we don't have disciples. We've got converts today, and that is not what God called us to do.